Well, good morning again, and if you have your Bibles, will you open them to Romans chapter 8, please? Romans chapter 8. Several weeks back, we began a series entitled Fear Factor. We began this series to address the subject of fear in the life of the believer in Jesus Christ. Many had inquired and asked about fear. And as a result, I felt that if I could encourage you through God's word to help you in your times of fearfulness to remain obedient to Christ, that was my hope and desire. Fear can keep you from doing what God would have you to do, but a certain fear can motivate you to do what God would have you to do. Everyone struggles with fear. All of us contend with it. And it can be disabling in our lives if we allow it to become that. It can totally paralyze us. It can create great anxiousness, worriness, and even depression in the life of the individual. But in Jesus Christ, we have been adopted, freed from the bondage of fear. And throughout the Old Testament, the writers tell us that it is the fear of the Lord in their day that would do so. Today, it is the adoption that we have in the new covenant in Jesus Christ that separates us from the incredible power that fear may reign over us at any given time. I recommended at the beginning of this series a book by Dr. Mark McDonald, who showed and demonstrated that over the two years of the pandemic, he is a psychologist, I should say a psychiatrist, on staff at UCLA in Los Angeles, and he began to see how fear in the lives of the individual was being manipulated and exploited by those who are in authority. Many of you have read that book and have said it has been incredibly eye-opening to you. But as we talk about fear, we conclude our series with a passage in Romans chapter 8, showing how Paul encourages us to tell us that the adoption that we have in Jesus Christ has freed us from the bondage of fear. So let us begin by reading verses 12 through 17 in Romans chapter 8. For Paul writes in verse 12, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. For as many are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him that we also may be glorified together. So I thought it would be appropriate to recap this 
last few weeks together. So if you're just jumping in today, you're going to get the cliff notes. Personally, when I was in high school, I used to love when the teacher would say, we're entering into review week. You know what that meant? Summer's around the corner and we can get out of here, okay? But that being said, I want to recap for you because we began in Isaiah 41. And the verse should be on the screen behind you. In Isaiah 41, verses 8 through 10, we began with this passage. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I've taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. So fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The first thing that we took away from that passage was the fact that we are truly God's. As God chose Israel in the Old Testament, so has God chosen us before the foundations of the world to be his kids, to be with him. And as a result of that relationship, he clearly tells us that since we are his, we should fear not. Why? Number one, because he is with us. We are not alone in this world as a child of God. Then he goes on to say, be not dismayed, which means unsettled in your mind, brought to a place of insecurity, overwhelmed, if you will. Why? Because I am your God. When things are out of control from our perspective and we become overwhelmed by those circumstances, we must always lean into the understanding that our sovereign God is in control of all things. Nothing is out of the realm of his control. And though it may appear to be as chaos from our perspective, from his Everything is moving along as it should to fulfill his ultimate purpose. And when we have no strength in us, he says he will help us. And when we totally fall and fail, he upholds us. For you are my righteous right hand, he says. God is our righteous right hand, holding us when we fall and fail. Beautiful words that were to encourage the children of Israel at that time and us today. That God is with us. That He is our God. And that He will strengthen us and uphold us by His right hand. But to understand fear properly, we needed to return to the book of Genesis. So we traveled back there to discover that fear was the first emotion that was specifically described in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. When God approached Adam and Eve after their fall, Adam said to God, So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and hid myself. Fear is a result of the fall. Now, I am saying that fear did not exist prior to the fall in the manner in which we experience it today. 
We call fear a natural emotion, and that is true. We all struggle with fear. It is part of our being, our nature. But that was a result of the fall. And like anything else that was destroyed at the time of the fall, all things can be restored through the person of Jesus Christ and only through him. So if we are going to truly understand the origins of fear being a result of the fall, then we also have to understand that if we are going to uh, deal with it, if we are going to overcome it, we must do so in and through Christ. That's how we overcome. That's how we bring into subjection our natural man, our flesh, is through Christ and His Spirit and His Word. But after looking at Genesis chapter 10, we then traveled to Psalm 34, verses 1 through 10. This psalm was written after David had escaped the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 10. When he was there in Gath, and he was captured, and he was brought before the king, he acted as a madman to be released. It worked, but yet he credited God for his escape. Fearful. He was someplace he shouldn't have been. And God delivered him from that. And he met his men in a cave in Adullam. And there he encouraged them with the words of this psalm. And he began to introduce the concept, the idea of the fear of the Lord. And how the fear of the Lord was the beginning of so many various elements of our new life in God. As he said, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times, praising him for his deliverance. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. For I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. Underline that. They looked to him. And were radiant, and their faces were not ashamed. The poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him, and he delivers them. And here's the invitation O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. O fear the Lord, you, you his saints. There is no want to those who fear him. The young lion lacks and suffers hungry, but to those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. So as describing the fear of the Lord in his initial invitation and in this time with these men in this cave, three words are used. Number one, trust. If we are truly going to fear the Lord properly, we must first trust the Lord. Secondly, as he asks, now fear, the word fear here means that not only do we trust him, but we obey him in what he has you know, commanded us to do. And number three, we must seek the Lord in all that we do. These were products of one who truly feared the Lord at that time. They trusted him. They feared him, meaning they obeyed him. And they sought him, meaning that he was in their conscience every step of the way 
throughout their life. But then he goes on in verse 11, which we looked at next. And he invites people to come, you children, listen to me. And here he introduces the idea, the concept, that the fear of the Lord can be taught. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? The phrase that is used there in the Hebrew means one who would keep their lives from the complications of evil and sin. Now we know that the world introduces evil before us. and We know that evil happens around us. But let us not contribute to that evil by what we do making decisions contrary to those decisions that God would have us to make, making decisions that will not reap benefits, but we reap consequences and complication within our life. How many times throughout the Old Testament do we see individuals who were disobedient to God and as a result reaped enormous consequences and truly complicated their life? I think of King David, a man after God's own heart. But after he sinned with Bathsheba and began to disregard what he knew to be true and what the Lord would have of him, did you ever notice that as you begin to read further on in the life of David, how complicated and, excuse me, dysfunctional his family actually became? Dealing with Absalom and others. Very difficult. Things he would have been spared if he just would have been obedient to the Lord. I sure nobody drank from this one. Nope, it's good. <coughs> but here David says, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Now what's interesting is that both David and Solomon, towards the end of their life, decided to try to encourage their, chil- their children and help them avoid the mistakes that they had made so their, his, their children didn't complicate their lives in the same way they had. When you read Proverbs, it's a father writing to a, a, his child, a son. When you read Ecclesiastes, you realize that Solomon is looking at life from the perspective at, you know, closer to the end rather than to the beginning in hopes that their, their children would read these things and not you know, repeat the same mistake over and over and over again. And it's interesting to me that Solomon, the wisest of the individuals of the Old Testament, far second from Christ, of course, yet that wisdom wasn't applied in his family dynamic and in his personal life the way it was in his governance of the nation of Israel. Which shows me that even though we can have wisdom, we still have free will to choose to exercise that wisdom or not. To apply that wisdom or to regard it, to dismiss it. And what's interesting to me is that so often I see the same pattern today in many homes where we'll apply the wisdom of the the word to areas of our life, but neglect our family, neglect our children, our true legacy, those who we hope will walk in the ways of the Lord, training them up, being examples unto them. That's really what that word means, to be examples to them. 
But yet in so many cases, I've spoken with parents that, yes, they have the career, they have the home, they have the material possessions, they have a wealth that they are going to leave to their children through inheritance. And yet, the children seem to be far from God. And that's exactly the way it was for Solomon. And in his hopes to try to rectify that, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, which we are currently reading in our young adults group together, hoping to gain the wisdom from Solomon. If anyone experienced life, you could make the easy argument that it was Solomon. And yet he said, all is vanity. I was grasping for the wind. This is ridiculous, and everything that I've created, everything that I have built, and everything that I've accumulated, I have to give to someone else as an inheritance. And then he asked the question, are they prepared to receive it? Or will that wealth corrupt them even more further? It is interesting that if you read the history of the nation of England, there was a period of time that England uh, experienced great prosperity and wealth, And then that generation began to die off, and they gave it through inheritance to their children. And yet the children, the successors in most cases, were not prepared properly to handle that wealth. And you can imagine, they quickly squandered it. They didn't realize what it took to earn it. They didn't have the discipline that it took to steward it properly. And as a result, the inheritance corrupted them even further. So the fear of the Lord. David says, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Because that's where it all begins. And he goes on in Psalm and in the book of Proverbs to give us five distinct characteristics of the fear of the Lord indicated by the words, the fear of the Lord is. And we looked at all of those together. But in the end of looking at those five verses together, we come to the same conclusion that Isaiah did in Isaiah 33, 6, that wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times and the strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. That's where real, true spiritual wealth comes from. Through the fear of the Lord. That's where it all begins. And as Solomon said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But Isaiah goes one step further and says that knowledge, that wisdom will give you stability in an insecure world. It will strengthen you when you're weakest. And the fear of the Lord to one who truly understands it is actually a treasure to him. Parents, let me encourage you that the greatest thing that God has blessed you with are your your children. Please be conscientious on how you disciple them, how you train them, how you prepare them. I think we can all say with certainty that the world that they are going to be entering into is nothing like the world that we entered into when we were in our 20s. They are going to have to contend with social circumstances that we couldn't even comprehend or imagine. 
The only thing that's going to stabilize them in such an insecure world is the knowledge and the wisdom of God. The only thing. And I don't care how old your children are. You're always going to be their parents. You're always going to be concerned with their well-being as their parents. Pray for them. Be there for them. Remain approachable to, for them. Allow them to come to you. Stop what you're doing and give your ear to them when they come. But please, if you haven't as husband and wife, please pray for your children day in and day out. I remember being at a conference once and Pastor Chuck Smith's wife, Kay Smith, was asked, What was the secret to her parenting? For her children had grown up and were all walking with the Lord. And she said, many, many hours of prayer and tears. Please be praying for your children with your spouse every day. And trust me, as they get older, you think that they branch out even farther, and they do, and they make and establish their own lives. And one of the things as parents that I hope we take into consideration, especially you who are parents of of younger children, please always be aware in the back of your mind that one day they will be 18, that one day they will be 21. Now, I realize being a parent myself that I'll always see my daughter in those younger years. It doesn't matter, you know, if she's 23, 33, 43. I'll always see her that way. But one of the things I have seen over the last 25 years of being a pastor, and I want to share this with you, is that some give me the impression that their children becoming 18 or 21 was a surprise to them. That it happened before they could even imagine. And you're right, it happens before you can even imagine. Nobody could have prepared me for how fast time goes when you become a parent. And I look at the pictures of when Autumn was born and the way she is today, and she has grown. I have definitely changed. But then my wife still looks perfect. (laughs) Hopefully that scored me some points right there. But my wife and I, when we go out and we go for a walk or we go out to dinner together, we're always saying, how is our daughter 23? We're not old enough to have a 23-year-old daughter. Look at your little ones tonight and realize one day that they will be 18, one day they will be 21, and how are you contributing today to help them make that transition into adulthood? Ask yourself that question. Are you preparing them to take the next step? To be self-governed by God? No longer under the umbrella of your authority, but as they become adults and individuals, individuals under the Lord, making the decisions independently from you that they need to make before the Lord. That's a question I wish I would have been asked even more or challenged on more when I was a younger parent. So I encourage you today, remember one day your children will be adults. And that day is probably coming quicker than you think. 
We discovered then in Jeremiah that this teaching of the fear of the Lord would no longer be necessary in the new covenant. And this fear, this motivation, which means reverence and awe of God in the Old Testament, would still continue in the New Testament, but there would be a greater motivating factor in the life of the individual, and that is the love of the Lord. For Jesus said very clearly, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. James went on to say that we are governed no longer by the law of Moses, but we are now governed by the law of liberty, the law of love in Christ. So as Jeremiah wrote, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenants would they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, and I will remember it no more. Which leads us to our text today. The scholar who wrote on the book of Romans in this particular section's very articulately, eloquently, showed that the bondage that we had to the old life was truly a bondage of fear. The bondage that we walked in was a bondage that kept us confined by fear itself. And through the adoption into Christ, we have been released from that bondage of fear. Meaning we have reason now not to be afraid. And not only do we have that reason, but we also have the Holy Spirit confirming that within us. And we have the Word of God to promise that He will be with us and never leave us nor forsake us. And all of those things that needed to be earned by the merit of the Mosaic Covenant, those things that the children of Israel strive for through their obedience to the law, so that they would be blessed according to Deuteronomy 28 rather than being cursed according to Deuteronomy 29. Paul begins the the incredible book of Ephesians by saying that we have now been blessed with all blessings that are found in heavenly places in and through Christ Jesus. It's been given to us up front. And one of those blessings is our adoption in Christ. Now, I personally was adopted by my parents. So was my sister. And there were times that I was very thankful for that adoption. As I came home one day, I found my dad mowing the lawn, and he had a white hat on. He had a brown shirt with speckles. He had striped shorts, and he had white shoes and brown socks. And I got out of the car, and my first reaction was, thank God I was adopted. I also said at that time, because my dad was balding, thank God I didn't inherit his hairline. And then God said, oh, be careful. 
But my, my sister and I were adopted, and I was very thankful for, to be adopted. And through it came a bunch of various privileges and benefits being part of the family that I was part of. We have been adopted by Christ, by God the Father, in and through Christ to Himself. And not only, did he, not only did He redeem us and atone us from our sin, past, present, and future, but He also adopted us. It wasn't that He just simply forgave us and gave us incredible cleansing through the blood of Jesus Christ, but He also then adopted us to allow us to become joint heirs with Christ in the kingdom of God. Meaning we're one of his kids today. That adoption broke the bondage of fear within our life. So understanding that adoption, which we hope to do this morning, will help us break free of the bondage of fear. So let us begin. In verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors... Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if you live in the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many have been led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Paul the Apostle made it clear in almost every one of his letters, that we are new creations in Christ. The old life has been crucified with Christ. We have been given new life, and now we are to live in that new life. He's, he described it as taking off the old man and putting on the new man. To walk in the newness of the life that God has given us. No longer to walk in the manner that we did prior to knowing Christ, but now to walk in subjection to Christ because of our love for Him that has been established because He first loved us and showed us that in and through the cross. And so now Paul is saying, realize that as a new creation in Jesus Christ, we are not debtors to the flesh. We owe the old life nothing. We owe the ruler of this world nothing. We have been freed from both to serve and to walk with the Lord and to live in the newness of life. If we become debtors to anyone, he says we become debtors to the Spirit, to walk according to the Spirit, allowing the fruit of the Spirit to define our life rather than the works of the flesh that destroys our life. Paul is saying, walk now in the newness of life. Peter went on to say that we had not been bought with precious stones or, or, or precious jewels, but we had been bought and paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's what it cost Christ to adopt us. It cost him everything. He gave his life. Through the shedding of His blood, we have the remission of sin to allow us the new life in Christ, to allow us to walk in the newness of life. Before my dad died, we were together at a family get-together some time ago, and we were talking about adoption and how much adoption costs nowadays. Oh, it's so expensive. And then they asked my dad, well, what does adoption cost in 1968? And my ears perked because that's when I was adopted. 
oh, well, if it had cost that back then, we would have never been able to do it. But that's okay. We got Eric on a blue light special. (laughs) Well, for those who don't know what that means, there used to be a store in the area called Kmart. And somebody's job was to push this cart that had this blue strobe light at the top. And whatever department that cart wound up in and that light went on, everything was like half off. So my dad basically said he got me in the bargain bin. Gee, thanks, Dad. (laughs) Yeah, one time he said that he, he named me Eric so I would be able to spell it. I was like... I was like, why didn't you just go with Bob? I could have gone either way. (laughs) As you can tell, my dad had a sense of humor. But Jesus Christ, it cost cost him everything to adopt us. He hung on that cross to adopt us. He suffered the brutality that he suffered to adopt us. And here Paul the Apostle now tells us very clearly... Putting to death the old life and living in the new is the manner in which we should live. Paul goes on later in Romans to say that the only reasonable service of worship that we can offer God is to lay our lives down as a living sacrifice before Him. That's the only reasonable response that we can give in light of all that Christ has done for us. And since we have been bought and paid for by the blood of Christ and have been given new life, how now shall we ought to live? Shall we continue in the old life? Or shall we glorify God with the new life that he has given us? And when he talks about death and life here, ultimately, yes, the one who walks according to the flesh shall die. The one who walks according to the Spirit shall live because that, uh, that residence of the Spirit in the individual's life is indication that they are truly a child of God. But there's another implication here. That those who continue on in the old life as a Christian will never experience the abundant life that God has for you. You'll never experience the blessings that God has for you. And I'm not talking material blessings. I'm talking about the abundant life, free from the complications of sin, free from the consequences of sin that only God can divert us from as we walk with Him. But then he goes on to say, let the one be led by the Spirit. Notice with me. For if you will live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, you, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. What does it mean to be led by the Holy Spirit? There are three connotations that are given to us through the Word. Number one, that the Spirit carries us and bears us along the way at times. He carries us and bears us along the way. When we can't take another step, the Holy Spirit carries us one step further. Number two, the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. There are many Christians today who do not believe that God has a personal will for them. Meaning that all of the will of God that is needed to be known is found in Scripture. And I would say amen to that. There is much of the will of God indicated clearly in Scripture that the, that the believer must walk in. However, though, let us not then think 
that God doesn't have a personal plan, a personal direction for us as individuals. Paul demonstrated that beautifully in the book of Acts where he applied the word of God to what he knew to apply, but he also depended on the spirit to lead him and to guide him in where he should go. Now to allow that to happen, let us understand that we must be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, not grieving him with sin, not grieving him by not being obedient to his conviction that he leads us within. But there is a personal plan, a workmanship, good deeds that God had from the foundations of the world prepared for us, according to Ephesians 2.10. So it's interesting that Paul here says, not only is he caring and bearing, but he's also leading and guiding. And of course, number three, he keeps us in, on the right direction, on the right course, and bringing us along all the way to the end. Number three, that he is the author, the finisher of our, our faith, he who has begun a good work in you is faithful to complete it. Again, Trinity, aspect, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all working as one to accomplish these things in your life. But then Paul goes on to say, For you do not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. That is the bondage that we were under. The fear of God and judgment the fear that is rendered by circumstances that are overwhelming to us, the fear that would cause us to uh, disobey God when God would ask us to obey Him. But notice, we have been freed from that, but you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Knowing this changes the whole dynamic of our relationship with God. When Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount began to teach the disciples how to pray, he began with our Father, which is a term that no one would ever presume to approach God within. Never would one approach God in that personal, intimate relationship at that time. That was considered disrespectful, but Jesus encouraged not only himself, but us to pray that way. Here, Paul there reinforces the idea that in the adoption by the Spirit to God through Christ, we now can see God as dead. That figure within our life that brings stability in an unstable moment in our life, that calms our fears when fears become overwhelming, to know that there's a greater factor involved in our life than us ourselves. That's what Paul was saying here, that we can call him Abba, Father. As one wrote, he said very simply, is the person living for God and talking about the things of God? The person who is truly led by the Spirit is wrapped up in the things of God. For he is a son of God. He rejoices in his Father and seeks to please his Father in all that he does. And through that adoption, we are released from that bondage of fear, as he went on to write, the Spirit delivers a man from, the ter- from a terrible spirit, a spirit of bondage. Note what that bondage is too. It is to fear. Man is gripped by the bondage of fear, usually experiencing some apprehension, anxiety, tension, dread, alarm, danger, terror. Man is usually sensing some subjection, 
some enslavement to some form of fear. The one spirit with which all men are familiar with is the spirit of fear. Men are enslaved and held in bondage by fear. What causes fear? Almost everything and anything can arouse fear in a person's life. A list could go on and on if compiled. But here are a few. Suffering, disease, unemployment, loss of livelihood, not measuring up, a failure, disapproval, blame, death, traumatic trials, loss of a spouse, punishment, condemnation, and rejection are all on the top of the list of what people are fearful of today. But this is where the adoption becomes so important. This adoption, as one wrote concerning it, he said, the Spirit gives us access to God's presence. The believer has access to God because he has been adopted as a son of God. Note that the Spirit is called the Spirit of Adoption. Adoption is such a significant work of the Holy Spirit that it is called the Spirit of Adoption. The believer actually receives the Spirit of Adoption and the sense, the consciousness, the awareness, the knowledge that he is a son of God. The believer is a son of God with all the privileges of sonship, especially the privilege of access, of entering God's presence at any time and any place. It is this wonderful privilege that enables the believer to break the bondage of fear and to conquer the spirit of fear within him. If the four could be listed, that this privilege privilege could be defined as it would be number one entering the presence of God number two laying our fears before God number three the confidence of relationship that we can cry out saying father father help me and number four to know that God will help for God loves him as his adopted son it is interesting when the Hebrew writer wrote of Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4 He talked about this privilege of entering into God's presence boldly. That presence that had been separated by a curtain, a drape, that was torn from top to bottom at the moment that Christ was crucified. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but in all points tempted as we were, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. The privilege of adoption that granted us the privilege of access to God. This was huge in the life of the early believer, especially as a Jewish gentleman like Paul was, who had become a Christian. As he grew up, Paul was always separated from God. He wasn't worthy to go into the Holy of Holies. Only a certain individual could go in before the Lord, before the ark at certain times of the calendar year. But now Paul is rejoicing in the fact that in the new creation that we have become, in the new life that has been mediated through Christ, now we as individuals can go before God at any time entering into his presence with boldness because we are in Christ and have been adopted as son and daughters back to the Father through Christ. 
I love what he went on to conclude. He said, every genuine believer knows what it is to fear in this life. And he knows what it is to experience God's deliverance through the fear. He knows what it is to have the spirit of adoption surge through his being, giving assurance and confidence that God is in control and looking after him. He knows what it is to, do, to be a true son of God, a son whom God loves so much that he will move the world in order to meet the needs of his dear child. God loves God's love for his adopted child is as great as God's sovereign power. God will do anything for the believer who is his adopted son. Nothing shall separate him from the love of God. As Paul went on in verse 16, he says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. I'd like to conclude by reading the last portion of this chapter. I read this I don't know how many times per year. But knowing that we have been adopted and knowing how our God loves us, our Father loves us the way He does, when we experience fear, when we go through times of trouble and tribulation, when we're experiencing suffering, let us always be confident of this one thing, that no matter what we go through, nothing here on this earth will ever separate us from the love of God. And that's how Paul concludes here in verse 31. He says, What shall then we say to these things? Now if God is for us, who can be against us? But he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bear a charge against God's elect? That's you and I. It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore has also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. For we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet, in all things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Summing it up, nothing will separate you from the love of God. You've been adopted by the King. And whatever is going to happen next, God is already aware of. And it's all part of His perfect plan. And as he has guided you to this point, he will be faithful to guide you through what other storm we face together next. 
whatever may occur. And when fear arises, let us lean into the love of God like never before, knowing that he is on the throne and that he cares and that he knows all things and he is sovereign and nothing that man does will ever hinder the plans that he has for his creation. So next time you're afraid and that fear factor comes into play, let us always remember who our God is and nothing will ever separate us from our Heavenly Father.